Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Mblex Test Prep Podcast. My name is David. I am your host on this wonderful, fabulous, marvelous, dare I say exciting, journey through the world of the massage and bodywork licensing exam. My goal is to get you to pass the Mblex and make it as fun as possible while you're doing it. So, of course, we're going to start with a little shameless plugging, uh, of course, because I'm a, I'm a businessman. That's what I do. So I do have the 2021 version of the Emblex Test Prep Study Guide available right now. You can go to my website, emblexestprep.com. Go to the store or shop page. Uh, there should be a little drop-down thing that says Study Guides. Click on that. That'll take you to the link to pick up your study guide. Or you can go to Amazon.com. Search for Mblex Test Prep 2021. You should see my book. If it doesn't have my name on it, it's not my book. Please look for my name. Really easy to find. Okay. So there's that. I also do offer tutoring for you. I can do one-on-one tutoring or I can do group tutoring. Just go to my website, mblextestprep.com, and hit the tutoring thing at the top, the link at the top of the page. Or if you are interested in all of the tutoring sessions that I've already done in the past, I'm talking 25 hours of tutoring, audio and video, and a complete practice test that you can take that comes with a video that you, that you follow along with as you grade it, I do have that available as well. I have two separate packages. One comes with the study guide. I will mail you a copy of my study guide. One is just all of the files that you get with that package. It does not include the study guide. So if you already have my study guide, that's the perfect one to get. If you still need to get my study guide, get the package with the study guide. So you can get you get the complete learning experience, okay? So just go to my website, mblextestprep.com, click on the store or shop link at the top, and that'll take you to the page where you can purchase each one of those. Right now, they I do have a special price going, but that price will not last forever, so definitely t- check it out. Take a look. You'll learn a lot, I promise. Okay, so... Other than that, I am going to take a quick break, and when I get back, we will get started. All right, let's talk about the respiratory system, how we breathe. What are the mechanics of breathing? What are the parts of the body involved in breathing? Let's talk about it, okay? So everybody, when they think of the respiratory system, of course they think of the lungs, but obviously there are a lot of different parts of the lungs, and there are a lot of different structures in the body that bring air to the lungs that we don't necessarily think about, okay? So let's start with, well, the beginning of the respiratory tract. What are the two structures that air passes through to get into the body, What are the two structures responsible for conduction of air? And one of them really warms the air, too. What do you think? If you guess the nose and the mouth or the oral cavity, you are correct. Primarily, the nose is the structure that is responsible for conducting air in and out of the body. It's the main passageway for air when it wants to get into or leave the body. Okay, The mouth, yes, you can breathe through your mouth, of course, 
of course, everybody can breathe through their mouth, but primarily the nose. And there's a reason we want air to go through the nose as opposed to the mouth more commonly. Why do you think we would want air to go through the nose instead of through the mouth? What reason could there be to want air to go through the nose more than the mouth? Think about what you have inside the nose. Some kind of gross stuff, some would say. Don't you have mucus in your nose? Don't you have hair in your nose? I'm pretty sure you do. Why are those there? What's the reason we have air, or excuse me, hair? What's the reason we have hair and mucus in our nose? When we inhale through our nose, we're not just inhaling air. There are tiny, tiny microscopic particles of things like dust, dirt, debris, sometimes pathogens that can be inhaled through the nose as well. We have mucus and hair inside of our nose, inside of our nasal cavity to help catch all of that stuff to prevent it from going into the lungs and causing potential problems, something like emphysema, constant irritation of the lungs could occur if you have constant irritation of the lungs. Usually that's caused by more cigarette smoke, but kind of along the same lines there, okay? So that's the reason we want air to kind of travel through the nose so that we can properly fil- filter out all the waste products that could be coming into the lungs as we inhale. Now, in the mouth, in the th- in the throat, we do have a little bit of, of hair and mucus as well, just definitely not as concentrated as it is in the nose. The nose is definitely pretty good at filtering out a lot of the stuff that goes through it in the air that we breathe. Right? So after we bring air into the body through the nose, a lot of the waste is filtered out. Again, stuff like dust and pathogens filtered out with the mucus and the hair, then air travels into the pharynx, excuse me, goes through the pharynx. The pharynx, another name for that, is the throat. If you listen to the digestive system podcast, you should remember that the pharynx is the throat. And all it does is allow transportation of air, in this case, air, to different parts of the body, like the lungs. It also allows transport of food from the mouth into the esophagus. Okay, so the pharynx, just known as the throat. Then we have the larynx, a little bit further down. Now, the larynx, some people call it something else. The, the, a lay person may, may call it something else. What is the function of the larynx? What does the larynx do for us? Now, can we live without a larynx? Yeah, we could live without a larynx. Might not be as fun to live without a larynx for most people. And let's think about medical conditions, too, like laryngitis. We can have acute laryngitis that can be caused by something like trauma, or some sort of disease or infection in the body. What happens to somebody 
that has laryngitis, what are they unable to do? Now, some people may say talk, and that's partially true. When somebody has laryngitis, it's more you can't produce sound that you need in order to talk. So the larynx, also called the voice box, has vocal cords inside of it, and air moves across the vocal cords and produces vibration. And that vibration produces sound. And you use your mouth and the, the combination of the mouth, the tongue, the lips, the teeth, and the larynx to produce speech. So if somebody has something like laryngitis... Like, if you go to a concert and all you're doing is screaming all night, you might have laryngitis due to trauma to the larynx. You could have some sort of infection, infectious laryngitis, which could mess with your vocal cords, cause inflammation of the larynx, and cause a lack of sound to be produced by the larynx. Not a very fun thing. So between the larynx and the pharynx, What structure do we have? This this structure is responsible for preventing food and drink from getting into the larynx. So it's really important. What is that called? What is that structure? Starts with an E. It is the epiglottis. The epiglottis, when we swallow, will, it's this little flap, when we swallow, it will cover the top of the larynx and prevent food and drink from moving into the larynx, which prevents choking. So sometimes I will take a drink of water and forget to actually perform the action of swallowing, then water just runs straight down my throat into my larynx because my epiglottis didn't close because I didn't perform the action of swallowing, and then I start coughing, and it's, uh, ah, man, not very fun. (laughs) I'm I'm sure we've all been there, right? We've all been there. So the epiglottis is the structure that closes the larynx when we swallow to prevent choking from occurring. So very important, the epiglottis. Okay, so moving down, the, the larynx moves inferiorly and becomes a tube of cartilage, and that tube of cartilage starts with a T, It is known as the trachea. The trachea is also called the windpipe. So when we are breathing, air goes from the larynx into the trachea. And the trachea is what brings air to the lungs, specifically. So if somebody has some sort of blockage of the larynx, like if they choke on a piece of food, sometimes you do have to cut into the trachea to get air to go into the lungs once again. Okay. So the trachea will then branch off into two separate portions. And those pieces that branch off, they start with a B. What would those be called? The pieces of the trachea that branch off starts with a B. Those pieces are called the bronchus or the bronchi. Okay. So one side... Uh, the bronchus that that belongs to one side would be called like the right bronchus. The left side would have the left bronchus. Okay, so the bronchial tubes, another name for them, 
allow air to move into each lung. So up until this point, air has only traveled through one main canal. At this point, air branches off into the left side and the right side. Okay. The bronchial tubes are made of epithelial tissue, and something that epithelial tissue does is they secrete. Now, what substance would the bronchial tubes secrete? Think about the inside of the nose and what that secretes. What substance does, is secreted inside the nose? It's very important for protection of the body. And that's one of our primary functions of epithelial tissue, too, is protection. And this is one way that it protects. So how, how would the bronchial tubes protect? What do they secrete? They secrete mucus, just like in the nose. Okay. So the mucus in the bronchial tubes helps to add another layer of protection for the bronchial tubes, for the lungs. We don't want a bunch of air and, or, I mean, <laughs> stuff in the air and pathogens and debris getting into the lungs because it could cause lung damage. Again, I referenced emphysema earlier. That's a, that's a perfect example of something that can happen when you have excessive debris and dust and dirt and just bad things getting into the lungs. It can start damaging things inside the lungs and cause a lack of of oxygen getting into the body and lack of carbon dioxide getting out of the body. We do not want that. That is not a good thing. So the mucus in the bronchial tubes helps to further protect the lungs from getting all of that stuff in them. Now, it's when the body produces too much mucus in the bronchial tubes that it becomes a problem. Conditions like chronic bronchitis or asthma may have an excessive production of mucus in the bronchial tubes. Specifically with, with asthma, the smooth muscle that surrounds the bronchial tubes constricts, and that narrows the, the bronchial tube, so less air can flow through there. And the bronchial tubes will also produce more mucus than they normally would which makes it even harder to breathe. So if you hear somebody wheezing, that's the sound of air traveling through those tubes that maybe should be a little bit wider. And that's when we take something like bronchodilators to help to dilate the bronchial tubes and open up the airways. Makes it a lot easier for people with asthma or chronic bronchitis to breathe. Okay. So air moves a little further from the bronchial tubes into the bronchial tubes, and the bronchial tubes will then branch off into smaller bronchial tubes called bronchioles. Just like the arteries branch off into arterioles, the bronchial tubes branch off into bronchioles, just smaller versions of the bronchial tubes. We need to get smaller at this point, smaller, 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 until we're at the point where gas can be exchanged. So at the very end of the bronchioles is the little, they kind of look like a cluster of grapes. What are those called? The little cluster of grapes at the end of the bronchial tubes. These are called alveoli. And what happens in the alveoli? What do the alveoli do? 
So the primary function of the alveoli is to allow gas exchange to occur. So the cluster of grapes has a lot of surface area, and we need a lot of surface area for gas exchange to occur. Moving over the surface of the bronchial tubes are capillaries, and the capillaries allow blood to move right up against the surface of the alveoli and allows the carbon dioxide to detach from erythrocytes and allows oxygen to then attach to the erythrocytes. And that's where gas exchange occurs. What can happen if we lose surface area in the alveoli? What happens to the alveoli when they start to degenerate and then distend or get, get bigger after losing a lot of surface area? What condition is that called? Now, I've referenced it a couple times already. If you guessed emphysema, you are correct. So emphysema is caused by constant irritation of the alveoli by doing things like smoking cigarettes. So the more you smoke, the more you damage the alveoli and cause them to lose surface area, and that doesn't allow enough carbon dioxide to leave the body and doesn't allow enough oxygen to get into the body. So people with advanced stages of emphysema may have... Uh, Tubes kind of stuck up their nose, giving them plenty of oxygen. I mean, more oxygen than they're able to get. Probably have to wheel around a, an oxygen tank and everything. Not a good thing. You don't want emphysema for sure. So what muscle in the body makes all of this work? What muscle in the body makes all of this work? This muscle separates the chest, the thorax, from the abdomen. So what muscle is right there? Now, if you guess the diaphragm, you're correct. Good job. I, I always believed in you. It is the diaphragm. The diaphragm is the muscle that separates the thorax from the abdomen. And this is the muscle, when it contracts, it allows us to inhale or breathe in. Now, here's a... Here's Here's a question that always kind of trips people up. When we inhale, when the diaphragm contracts, does it move down? Does it move inferiorly into the abdomen? Or does it move superiorly into the chest? I want you to put your hand on your trunk and then inhale and see what you think. I'll do it with you. Ready? Now, how many of you thought it goes up into the chest? How many of you thought it, well, it went down into the abdomen? If you thought it went up into the chest, I'm sorry, that is incorrect. It goes down into the abdomen. I know we feel it in our chest when we inhale, but that's because our lungs are filling with air and it's causing the chest to expand. You have to think of the chest kind of as a vacuum, and there's not enough room in the chest for air unless we make more room. So when the diaphragm contracts, it moves down into the abdomen, and when it moves down, it pulls on everything in the chest, including the lungs, and opens the lungs up and allows air to move in. And when we exhale, just a way to picture it, when we exhale, just imagine the diaphragm going from the abdomen 
kind of where the, like where the stomach is, where the stomach and liver are. Right up against those organs, it goes from there. When we exhale, it, it moves up into the chest and pushes all of the air out. And all the air leaves the lungs because the, ab the diaphragm is moving from the abdomen up into the chest, pushing the air out. Okay, so the diaphragm is the muscle responsible for inhalation and exhalation, kind of. So when, again, when the diaphragm goes down into the abdomen, we inhale. When it goes up into the chest, we exhale. There are four structures that actually move through the diaphragm. What are they? What are the four structures that move through the diaphragm? And we're thinking of things that go between the chest and the abdomen. What do you think they are? I can tell you two of them are blood vessels. Which two blood vessels are going to move through the diaphragm? What's the largest artery in the body? The largest artery in the body is the aorta. Takes blood from the heart to the rest of the body. It has to get down to the lower limb somehow. It has to go through the diaphragm. So the aorta goes through the diaphragm, the descending aorta. Doesn't blood have to get back to the heart from the lower limbs? It goes to the lower limbs. It has to get back to the heart somehow, right? What is the blood vessel that brings blood from the lower limbs and the trunk back to the heart? Think about what type of blood vessel this is, of course. If it's bringing blood to the heart, that makes it a vein. So it's one of the largest veins in the body. We have two of them. One, one is above this, this one. So that one would be superior. This one would be inferior. It is the inferior vena cava. The inferior vena cava is going to bring blood from the lower limbs and the trunk back to the heart. It has to be able to get through the diaphragm somehow, so that also passes through the diaphragm. Okay, we've got a structure in the lymphatic system. It is the largest lymph vessel in the body. This structure is what allows lymph to drain into the left subclavian vein. What structure, what vessel brings lymph to the left subclavian vein and empties lymph into the blood? Named after the region of the body you find it in, the thorax. The largest lymph vessel in the body is the thoracic duct. That also goes through the diaphragm. So one more structure. Hmm. One more structure. And I did very, very briefly mention it today. Think of the digestive system. Now, some of you just said stomach. No, the stomach, the stomach is not in the chest. The stomach doesn't go through the diaphragm. When it does go through the diaphragm, then it becomes kind of a problem. You can get gastroesophageal reflux disease, which you don't want. 
What organ connects the pharynx to the stomach? Just a long tube. What's that called? It is the esophagus. The esophagus also passes through through the diaphragm. It has to get food into the stomach, which is in the abdomen, so it's going to also go through the diaphragm. So the four structures that go through the diaphragm, the aorta, the inferior vena cava, the thoracic duct, and the esophagus. And what nerve? Because this is a muscle, it is innervated by a nerve. What nerve innervates the diaphragm? Hmm, tricky. This is the only nerve that is part of the cervical plexus that you need to know. The only one. All the other ones, you just completely forget them. This one, though, you should know. What nerve innervates the diaphragm? It starts with a P. Any idea? It is called the phrenic nerve. P-H-R-E-N-I-C. Phrenic nerve. That's the nerve that's part of the cervical plexus. Comes out of the neck. Goes all the way down to the diaphragm and innervates the diaphragm. And that's the, that's the nerve that controls the contraction of the diaphragm and allows us to actually breathe. So that is essentially it with the respiratory system. A lot of good information there. Okay, so I am going to take a quick break. When I return, we will, uh, I don't know what we're in. We'll figure it out. Welcome back. All right, so this week we're going to do something a little different. And I say, it seems like I say that a lot these days. We're going to do something a little different. This week, we are going to assess a client, and that client is going to be me because I've got some things going on with my body that we can talk about. We can figure out maybe what's going on. And I don't have all the answers, but that's okay because it gets you thinking about things that could possibly be going on with me and my current uh, situation, as it were. Okay, so... The, the way I'm presenting this is how you could encounter a client because I've been thinking about getting a massage and I'd have to explain this all to my massage therapist. And you'd have to have a conversation with your client about each one of these things and figure out, okay, what could possibly be happening? What could be contraindicated? What areas of the body are okay to work on? What are areas of the body maybe I should be careful of, or just not work on at all. Lots of things go into client assessment. Okay. So the number one way to assess a client is by talking to your client and listening to your client, actively listening, actively paying attention to your client and what they are saying, interpreting the information and trying to figure out the best course of action. Okay. So just give me one second. It's a long story, I suppose. Okay, two weeks ago, here we go. So pretend, just pretend that I'm your client and I'm explaining all of this to you. Think about how you would respond, things that you are looking for as a therapist. Okay? 
Here we go. A couple weeks ago, I went to the gym, and it had been a long time since I'd been able to go to the gym. My wife works at home now, and I have to take care of the kids, and the kids' club at the gym is closed. So it's really difficult for me to get to the gym as often as I'd like. Okay. I decided to work on my legs because I've got massive arms. I'd like to strengthen my legs a little bit. And I've been having some back pain from just sitting around far, far too often because, you know, what else am I going to do at home besides just sit around, right? So sitting around has caused me some back pain. The pain is, it was about the the midpoint in my back, right kind of near the vertebrae and one of the muscles there. It has since moved all the way down to my sacrum, and I'm pretty sure it's muscle-related, not anything structurally related as far as that pain is concerned. So I went to the gym, and I decided I'm going to do some squats. I'm going to work on my on my pelvis. I'm going to work on my thighs, and I'm just going to try to strengthen my core a little bit. I didn't do any sit-ups or anything like that. It's fine. So I went and did squats, weighted squats. Nothing too crazy, only about 135 pounds. I did, I worked on my lats. I worked on my glutes. I worked on my adductors. Man, what else did I do? And I did uh, 500 meters on a rowing machine. Two days after that, my back was in a lot of pain. And when I say a lot of pain, I mean a lot of pain. I, I couldn't bend over without it hurting really bad. It's still kind of giving me some trouble. A week after this happened, my back had started to feel a little bit better. I tried doing a lot of stretching and did uh, ice and heat contrast therapy on it, and it was feeling a bit better. So I went to the gym and I decided, you know what, I'm going to do squats again. Because it could be one of those things where I'm slowly strengthening those muscles. And that was just kind of a setback from inactivity over a long period of time. So I did squats. I did glutes. I did adductors. I worked on all of those. I did not do the lat pull down. I did not do the rowing machine. I did... I walked half a mile on a treadmill. And... My back felt great afterwards, as great as it can, of course. Still a tiny bit of soreness, just not a whole lot, not compared to the week prior. Then this week, I went back to the gym. I decided I'm going to do squats. I'm going to do lats. I'm going to work my adductors and my glutes, and I'm going to walk a mile. I did all of that, and now my back is sore again. Hmm. Why would my back be sore again? What did I... Okay. So taking all of that into account, what's the first question you're going to ask me? And there is no right answer to this. Just think, if a client comes in and you have this discussion with them, what's the first question that you're going to ask? Now, me personally, I'm going to ask, okay, well, how are you feeling right now? How long has it been? since you last exercised. For me, when was it? Today's a Saturday. I exercised on Tuesday or Wednesday. So I'm still getting a little bit of that a little bit of that back pain as a result. 
right in the lower back, right around L5, S1, that's another question you can ask. Where are you experiencing the pain exactly? Then you can palpate the area. You can feel for something like inflammation. You can ask their pain level on a scale of 1 to 10. My pain level is about an 8. When, like right now, I'm fine. When I, do, when I don't move, I'm fine. But when I try to bend over and pick something up, then it becomes uncomfortable. A 7 or an 8. Then I try to think about, hmm, well, the first week, what did, what did this client do compared to the second week when it felt fine afterwards? The first week I did, again, squats and the lat pull down. And I worked on my glutes on, the, uh, on a glute machine. And I worked on my adductors on an adductor machine. And I did 500 meters on a row machine. The second week, which one of those did I eliminate? I didn't do the lat pull down. I didn't do the row machine, but I walked half a mile. And then I compare those to the third week when I felt okay compared to how I feel now. Which one did I add back in? I added in the lat pull down. And I, I think I did a little bit of the row machine too. Hmm. So the squats are the one that's really the constant, right? The squats, the glute, and the adductor machines. Those are all constant. The variables that have changed are the lat pull-down. When I got rid of that, my back felt fine. When I added it both times, my back has given me trouble. So what might a recommendation be for me from you? As the therapist, if you know that the, the constant between both times that I was sore is doing the lat pull down, what would you recommend I do? Probably stop doing the lat pull down as much or make it a lower weight. I was only doing about 145 or 160, one of those. So I wasn't a, you know, a super heavy weight for me. But because I had not exercise as often, maybe that's what's causing my low back pain. And then we think, hey, latissimus, why would that affect the low back? Well, latissimus originates in the low back, doesn't it? The iliac crest, the lumbar aponeurosis. So definitely, if you're working on that, you can have some issues in the low back as a result of your latissimus dorsi. What are some things that you might recommend I do in addition to not doing the lat pulldown? And it doesn't have to be exercise specific either. What are some things you would recommend I do between exercise? Do you think I should stretch maybe? I think I should stretch. I should stretch before and after exercise and all between my exercises. Something else you could ask is, where does the pain go? That can tell me a lot. Just knowing that I have pain in my low back kind of sends some warning signals, if I'm the therapist, like, maybe there's a big problem going on. Let's see where the pain goes. If the pain goes all the way down to my foot, which it has, what condition might I be suffering from? 
There are a couple of them, actually. A couple conditions I might be suffering from are sciatica or piriformis syndrome, or both at the same time. What's the, what's the primary cause of sciatica? And this is where I start to think, hey, maybe it's sciatica. The primary cause of sciatica is a herniated disc in the lumbar vertebrae that compresses the sciatic nerve, which would cause pain going all the way down the foot because that nerve does go all the way down the foot. So that could be something to watch out for. Now, could it be piriformis syndrome? Absolutely. Piriformis syndrome has kind of the same symptoms. You experience pain going all the way down your foot. Structurally, though, it's a little different because it's the piriformis itself that's tightened and putting pressure on the sciatic nerve that runs right past it or in a small percentage of people right through that muscle. I tend to think it's more piriformis syndrome personally my wife is a massage therapist. I've had her work on my piriformis a bit. And that definitely seems to help. But, because we are massage therapists, we can't diagnose. So if I want to get an official diagnosis, I would need to be seen by an actual physician. In which case, you, of course, you don't tell your client, hey, yeah, this is a, you have sciatica. Or you have piriformis syndrome. You say, it, it could be one of these things. I'm not sure. You should probably go see a doctor to get this checked out. Which is something that I'm considering if this pain lasts for too much longer. Okay, Referring out, knowing when to refer out is always a good thing. Now, knowing that it could be sciatica, because I've got low back pain and I've got pain in my leg, in my thigh and it has gone all the way down to my foot. Because I've got that low back pain, and it could be, it could be sciatica, and the number one cause of sciatica is a herniated disc, would you work on the low back? Or is that contraindicated? Working on the low back, when there is a possibility of a herniated disc, is a local contraindication. So everything else you can work on. You can try to loosen up the hamstrings and see if that helps. You can try to loosen up the quads, the hip flexors, see if that helps, the psoas, see if all of that helps. You could try working on the piriformis, try to loosen that up, see if that helps. But you're not going to work on the low back if there's low back pain that you suspect could be caused by a herniated disc. So that would be a local contraindication. What's another way you could assess this client? If I come in, what's something you can ask me to do? Could you ask me to stand and look at my posture? Could I be guarding a little because of the injury? I think I probably could. You can tell a lot just by looking at somebody and how they're standing, how their body is positioned. If they have some sort of injury, I'm sure my pelvis is elevated to one side on the right side where I'm experiencing the pain. I'm kind of guarding that area. Could you ask me to walk? Could you pay attention to my feet and how they are positioned while I'm walking? That can tell you certain muscles might be tight. If my foot is, if I'm putting too much pressure on the inside 
of my foot while I'm walking, that could be a sign that something like peroneus longus is too tight or peroneus, yeah, peroneus longus. If it's the other side, it could be tibialis anterior that's a little too tight. Right? You can tell a lot by asking somebody to actually move. Okay. So what okay, so you get me as your client, I explain all of this to you. Those are a lot of steps that you can take and a lot of things that you need to think about. Okay, so am I gonna work on the back? Yeah, I can work on the back. Am I going to avoid the low back? Yeah, I'm going to avoid the lower back because I'm seeing signs and symptoms that there could be an issue with a herniated disc. Now, I don't know that, but I don't want to take a chance, right? You want to avoid. We don't know. So err on the side of caution with these clients. Now, knowing that other conditions like piriformis syndrome could present with the same kind of symptoms... I would be okay working on piriformis. I would be okay doing stretches within my client's pain tolerance, of course. Of course. Sometimes when I stretch, like I can definitely feel it in my back. What are some things you could recommend to your client? Again, perform stretching, ice, rest. Don't do the exercises that you're seeing commonalities with in regards to the pain. Like the lat pull down the first week, I experienced pain. The lat pull down the, the other week, I didn't do it, so I didn't have pain. And then last week or earlier this week, I did the lat pull down. Now I'm experiencing pain again. That's a common th- thread there that you want to bring up and say, hey, it might be a good idea not to do the lat pull down and see how you feel. So... I hope that that made a lot of sense. You have to get really good at assessing your clients. And there are a lot of things that go into client assessment. And I'm sure I'll do an entire podcast about client assessment at some point. Okay, so those are just some, that's a real life scenario that I just gave you. This actually happened to me. I am currently experiencing pain because of these exercises. And my form is fine. I, I'm not sure what happened. Sometimes it's just, just a freak thing. I don't know. I didn't feel any... Um, I didn't feel a traumatic event occur while I was exercising. This is something that showed up a couple days later, also called delayed onset muscle soreness, DOMS. Just something that happens. And it's, it's definitely the worst I've ever felt with delayed onset muscle soreness. I don't know. Just something I have to figure out. I could go to a doctor. I could go see a massage therapist and explain all of this to the therapist. And hopefully they know what they're doing. Hopefully you should know what you're doing. Get really good at assessing your client. Okay. Know your client assessments. All right. So that's going to do it for today's episode of the Mblex Test Prep Podcast. Again, I have the Mblex Test Prep 2021 version available on Amazon.com or MblexTestPrep.com. I have 25 hours of tutoring sessions already done, ready for you. Just go to mblextestprep.com. Really cool thing about those, I have the audio for each one of the tutoring sessions split up into something like a music album, so you can upload it to your phone, listen to it on the go, cut into individual tracks. Really awesome. Uh, What else do I have? I don't know. That's about it. So 
Um, until next time, I will definitely be getting more podcasts out soon. I know it's been a while. Having kids running around all the time, not exactly helpful, but I swear I'll get more podcasts out in the future. Okay? So until next time, this is David saying, what am I going to say? Adios! Adios!